Hi, welcome to the Art and Science of Learning, the podcast that digs deeper in how we learn, so that in today's accelerated world, we can learn better and enjoy it more. I'm your host, learning specialist, Dr. Kinga Petrovai. Every week, I discuss aspects of learning with academics, practitioners, and individuals with unique learning journeys to inform and inspire how you design learning into work and life. Virtual reality is well known for immersing people in activities such as flying, traveling in time, or in fictional worlds. But virtual reality can also be a powerful training tool. My guest in this episode has developed a virtual reality training experience that helps people to develop the capabilities to advocate for diversity, equity, and inclusion in higher education. Professor Jason Chen is the Gerdelman Family Term Distinguished Professor of Education at the William and Mary School of Education in Virginia, USA. The questions that drive his research have to do with the variety of ways innovative technologies can be used as a tool for motivation, engagement, and learning. In 2016, with funding from the National Science Foundation, Jason and his multidisciplinary team of geoscientists, social scientists, theater professionals, and technologists created a program called Geodes. This program involves the use of innovative virtual reality simulations designed to help university faculty practice advocating for more diverse, equitable, and inclusive departments. Thank you very much, Jason, for joining me. Great to be here. Thanks for having me, Kinga. So before we start, we are talking about a program that people kind of step into a slightly different world. So can you just describe what the virtual reality program looks like so that we can imagine what we're talking about throughout this conversation? Absolutely. Happy to. The program that I that started all of this is called Geodes, which is perfect for the geoscience con- context because the geode is, is very much so a geological feature. And it basically stands for Geoscience Diversity Experiential Simulations. What's it like? So the first thing you should know is that people use a computer or a laptop to engage in these simulations. There's no like special equipment that needs to be used. So once you're on your computer, the first thing that you see on your screen when you enter the simulation, at least for our simulations, is an office, pretty standard office uh, for our simulations. But you know, you can use a lot of different backgrounds, much like a Zoom virtual background. Like there are K-12 classrooms, for example. There's a medical background, all sorts of things. To really put you in the context of of the workplace that you're actually talking about. Totally. So right now it may look like I'm in the middle of a desert um, (laughs) and dunes. And so it gives you that impression as well. In addition to the sort of context, depending on how many avatars your scenario has in it, you can have up to five avatars that interact with you in this office environment. Mm -hmm. Uh, The avatars talk to you. They gesture to you. So like how I'm moving right now, I'm gesturing with my hands, my head's moving, right? All these different things are the same sorts of things that the avatars can do. And so the technology that we use is created by a company called Mersion. And they call this experience digital puppeteering, which I think is a term that is spot on because that's exactly what it is. You're, uh, you know, you're basically doing puppeteering with these digital avatars. In a nutshell, really what the experience is like and what you see when you quote unquote walk in. And, and because this is workplace learning, it simulates a workplace and it's almost like sitting around a boardroom table or a table, which is really great. 
But so you refer to this as a mixed reality simulation. So most people are familiar with virtual reality, but tell me a little bit, what does mixed reality really mean? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I should say that I've gone between these two terms, virtual reality and mixed reality a lot of times, but if I'm being completely true to the term, what immersion does is virtual reality. Mm. Mixed reality is similar to augmented reality. Like augmented reality is where you overlay digital information on top of a real object. So you use the camera of your phone and you see the real world to the camera and then augmented reality just puts stuff on top of that, right? Right. Mixed reality is like that, except now with mixed reality, what happens is that the digital information is anchored to the real object. You're looking at a real boat, for example, mm -hmm. and then on top of that is overlaid digital information like a, a fisher, mm -hmm. a fisher person like on the boat doing the fishing. If the boat moves, so would the person fishing. So it's anchored to that, to that real object. So with immersion simulations, everything that you see is a digital creation. Nothing that you see is real. But the major reason why I sometimes switch to describing the simulations as mixed reality is because I'm also thinking about the conversational aspect of the simulation. Okay. So the conversations that people have with the avatars is a real curious mixture of both real and computerized. Right. So the mixing of both quote unquote real or human with computerized signals for me, the fact that these simulations are a mixture of both real and artificial mm -hmm. and that the digital aspect, like the avatars is anchored to and quote unquote moves with the real human, which is the human conversational intelligence, right? Um, so like the conversational aspect of, uh, of things and the digital aspect of things sort of moves together. So that's why I kind of call it mixed reality, but technically perhaps, you know, it's considered VR rather than mixed reality. Right. Well, whatever the technicality terms, it is a wonderful, wonderful application and experience because you really do. You talk to the, the, the avatar and of course they use artificial intelligence to talk back to you, to respond to you with specific intentions in the background of the learning goals that you want to go through. Soon you forget that you're actually talking to an avatar, you're having a, an actual conversation, a genuine conversation, which is great. That's totally right. And like, what's, what's interesting is that just like there's digital puppeteering, if you're doing a play, there's gotta be a director. I, I work with a theater professor actually, mm -hmm. uh, who is himself an actor and a director and has his mm -hmm. own sort of company in the theater arts. And so theater is very much so a part of this. And I, I think that this is why it's so relevant to your podcast, because this is the art and this of learning and yes like there's so much art in this too which is all about theater and theatrics and so what's cool is that like it's so real because there's basically a playwright helping the human element of things make it seem so real if you get into one of these simulations particularly because it's about diversity equity and inclusion you're going to finish the simulation you'll be sweating okay <laughs> Because you'd be wow. like, wow, that was really, wow, it was really interesting. Yeah. It's exciting, but boy, I really had to work. That's really great. And I, I suppose the individual on your team who's a theater producer really is able to bring in that engagement aspect. I mean, obviously, as a theater producer, 
they know how to engage the audience, how to work with feelings and ignite feelings. I'm guessing that's a lot of what he brings to this is to really provide that engagement element. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. In a lot of ways, I think theater is learning. Mm -hmm. It is. Absolutely. Yeah. Because if you're part of a play and you're enacting what it's like to advocate for diversity, Mm -hmm. you've got to do it. That's, That's learning. And so it's, it's really great. So in essence, as I said in the introduction, this is diversity training. Lack of diversity in the STEM fields is well documented, and you particularly focus here on geoscience. But this is true for all fields as well. And so you, can you tell me a little bit about this and what the public may not yet be aware of? So can you tell me a little bit about diversity in STEM in general? Absolutely. So Kanga, if you had to guess what percentage of PhDs are awarded to Black, Latinx, and Indigenous people each year in the geosciences, what do you think that percentage would be? Well, I have an inkling because I read your paper. (laughs) Oh, okay. (laughs) But it's very low. It's very, very low. Yeah. Yeah, so it's 6%. Yeah, exactly. Right, in in 2016. So just to kind of get some context here, um, you know, the percentage of Black, Latinx, and Indigenous people in the general American population is 31%. Mm. I was really surprised when I was reading this. I mean, in some ways, not surprised, but also kind of shocked uh, reading yeah. it in your paper. Yeah. And I should also mention that the numbers for this for the same population in other STEM fields, it's also terrible, mm-hmm. right? In mathematics and computer sciences, for example, the percentage of PhDs awarded to that same population is 11%. That's nearly double what it is in geosciences. Right. It's the same thing for, for engineering, which is the field that you graduated from, right? So for underrepresented minorities, that's 11%. For life sciences, it's a little bit better. We're looking at 14%. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you look at psychology and social sciences, we're looking at 17%. Mm. So these are all not good numbers. No. But for geosciences, it's the worst out of all STEM fields. Right. So that's what you focused on. But of course, your program is very much applicable and can expand to other disciplines as well. But what are some of the possible reasons you think we all know some of the reasons, but what are some of the kind of intricacies and the reasons why there's a lack of diversity? Yeah. So by the way, I'm pulling all of these numbers from a really wonderful study that was published in Nature three years ago by Rachel Bernard and Emily Cooperdock. Uh, they're both junior faculty in geoscience departments. I'll just say that like I'm an outsider when it comes to geosciences because I'm a social scientist by training. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've just so happened to be welcomed into a geoscience community by, by folks. So being an outsider in the world of geosciences, I, I depend a lot on the geoscience colleagues I work with and on the geoscientists I read, like Bernard and Cooper Doc. Uh, or Julie Labarkin at Michigan State. She's wonderful too. She also happens to be a, a graduate of William & Mary. Yay. So when it comes to you know diversity, you look at the usual suspects and it's the same usual suspects that you see in STEM fields. Poor recruitment efforts in higher education. There's also really poor efforts keeping talented faculty of color in universities. This is something that everyone is seeing play out right now before our eyes with Nicole Hannah-Jones at UNC Chapel Hill. Other usual suspects include historic and persistent processes and policies that deny people of color opportunities, mm-hmm. like underfunded, under-resourced K-12 schools in communities of color. But then when you look at geosciences in particular, you've got to look at what geoscientists do and what they think about, right? Mm-hmm. Do you like going on multi-day hikes, Kinga? I enjoy it, yes. <laughs> awesome. Me too. And when you're 
camping out in the wilderness, what do you notice about other people who are doing the same thing? I think there is probably a lack of diversity and it is a more male environment and probably more Caucasian environment for people who are going camping and especially backcountry camping. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, during my sabbatical year, I spent a long time traveling with my family across the U.S. camping out in national parks. Wonderful. One of them is right behind me right now in the virtual background. We went to 28 national parks. Wow. And all of these places are in really remote rural areas, right? Mm-hmm. And that's the beauty of these places. Like yes. you go outside at night and you can see the entire Milky Way galaxy. It's so Absolutely. Dark. That's incredible. So now imagine that that's your laboratory. That's your workplace. Totally. Yeah. So you spend a lot of time in remote areas camping mm. out because you have to, you have to collect the data there. And so there are lots of cultural contexts in which that's just not sort of available or part of what you do. And so, as you said, you know, this is a, it happens to be a very white space. It happens to be a very white male space as well. But then, you know, if you think about indigenous peoples and American Indians, and you might say, well, this is a group of folks who happens to, you associate with being outdoors. But of course, when you look at the hegemonic forces out there of Western culture and domination and land acquisition and and all that, there's so so much marginalization that happens in that way that I think your first geoscientists were American Indians, uh, indigenous folks, but that science doesn't get counted as science. Mm. And further marginalization just really squeezes a whole sector of society out. So those are the sorts of injustices that we see play out. That's why we see what we see. Absolutely. There's so many different different factors, some of them obvious, some of them really not obvious. And that's important to understand and recognize. And so here, I mean, you were talking previously about PhDs being awarded and the reason make it very clear that the reason we're talking about people who receive PhDs is because this training is for faculty at universities. So it's for diversity training for faculty being hired. So of course they would have to have PhDs. Diversity training in itself in the workplace has existed in in many different formats and people have heard a lot about it. So what is missing in what we know as diversity training and how Mm -hmm. is your program filling that gap? Love this question. So all of my experience with diversity training, and I've, I've experienced diversity training almost entirely in, in university and contexts. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what your experience with diversity training has been in university and out of university contexts, but it's probably very similar to what everyone else has, right? Yeah, uh, which is these mandatory things. Like I get an email from administrators in my university that say, do this. You have until this date to do it. And if you don't do it, then you won't be considered for merit pay increases. And so it's just like, oh, that's very standard in terms of diversity training. And then when you do it, it you're watching videos of uh, sort of these vignettes and scenarios, and then you get tested about like, what should you not do? All of these things are really just to make sure that uh, the, the university does what it's supposed to do. So, you know, it doesn't suffer embarrassing situations or get sued. That's not the best way to make sure that your institution is a thriving place. And so what's missing here is that our training, for example, we're really engaging people. What you don't see as a participant is the hundreds of hours that we spend making these 
situations as realistic as possible. So we interview people. So for example, the, the geoscience context, we interview geoscientists and say, what does racism look like in your work world? What does it sound like? Mm. What is the coded way that racism sounds like? And so we get a lot of that information and we craft these scenarios to be authentic to those sorts of contexts. So the authenticity is, is there. And the nuance, because traditionally this training, as you said, it's a bit of it's a checkbox scenario with with glaringly obvious examples. So as you said, it's very high level, but you really go into the nuance of situations, the complexities of it. Can you describe maybe something that is is a nuanced, more detailed scenario? More sure. Yeah, sure. So if you're sitting in a meeting with your superiors uh, and some other colleagues, so this is something that happens sometimes, which is, uh, you know, your department chair might convene a meeting, you're in the meeting, and the department chair might say something like, oh, so, you know, I just want to let everybody know, thanks, thanks for coming for, you know, first of all, but just want to let you all know this is, you know, this is the, this, we're meeting as a diversity committee, the dean wanted us to form this committee, um, but I just want to let you know, like, there's nothing that we're doing wrong, the dean just wants us to do to do this because it, it's a, it, it's, he, he's getting a lot of pressure from the president. Uh, I think we're doing fine when it comes to diversity, you know, when this, like this diversity stuff, like we're doing fine. So don't worry about it, right? That's literally what you'll see in our relations. You can either just kind of nod your head and go, oh, ooh, ooh, winced a little bit, right? Or you can intervene and say, um, Max, I, I'm curious, uh, why did you, why did you just say like, this diversity stuff, it seems to me maybe you're not taking this as seriously as, as, as I'd like to, you know, and it's coded, it's coded language, like this diversity stuff, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? Absolutely. People say that all the time, but how Max says it in that scenario should cue you and go, I don't think he's taking it seriously. Absolutely. And that's, that's nuance, right? That's, that's mm-hmm. really nuanced. And that's what makes it so hard to intervene because... You could go, he, maybe he meant that in a bad way, or maybe he didn't. I don't know. And if I, if I say something, am I making a mountain out of molehill? I don't know. And this is where the advantage of avatars comes in, because you don't have to question yourself. You can just ask and say whatever you want to say, because no one will be offended. <laughs> right. Yeah, that is really interesting. So can you describe a little bit more about what this training experience is like? Is it an individual or a group experience? And, and what does the training look like in a department? The training that we, we do is specifically focused on leaders. People who have some decision-making power are going to be participating in this. This is not a mandatory, everybody in the department has to do this. Mm-hmm. It's a, let's focus on leaders in the department who make decisions. And we made three simulations. The first one was what I just described to you. What you do is you have to identify microaggressions and be able to what we call call them in rather than call them out. Okay. Calling out would be saying something like, Max, that was so sexist. I can't believe you just said that, right? Nothing good comes out of that. Uh, he'll get defensive, deny, 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 right? Calling in would be, um, it's, it's, it's a little bit better because what you do is you're, you're, you're opening up conversation and you're bringing Max into the conversation rather than pushing him away. And so that's more productive. It takes a lot of 
savviness. It takes a lot of skill to be able to do that. I love that term, calling in or calling out. And so calling in, as you said, invites conversation, which is something we lack so much in in the world today, because so many nuanced situations, what they really need is a conversation. Give me an example of what that looks like in this context. It could be something as simple as saying one word. So we've told our, we've, we've taught our, our participants, if you're the person who really doesn't know how to say a lot, like you can literally just say, ouch, and go, oh, ouch. And if Max is observant, he'll be like, oh, I'm sorry. What happened? Did I say something? that starts a conversation, mm. right? Mm-hmm. But it can get more involved as well. You know, you don't have to just say, ouch, you can also, you know, do something like, Max, um, can I stop you there? Like, what did you mean by that when you said this diversity stuff? That opens up conversation too, right? It's the cue to him to say, oh, I guess I did say that. Mm-hmm. Oh, what did I mean by that? Mm-hmm. And then that's where you can start having a productive conversation. So it's being that's inquisitive good. in a lot of ways. That's, mm. that's kind of what we mean by calling it, calling in rather than calling out. It's those sorts of things that, that we, we try to teach our that's great. participants. Yeah. And so before we, because I know you were explaining the bigger concept, but before we move on to that, you referred to microaggressions. And I think it would be really helpful to understand a little bit in this context, what does a microaggression mean and look like? Mm-hmm. Microaggressions are daily insults based on your identity. So if we're talking about racial microaggressions, we're talking about daily small insults that experience over and over and over and over again. In a lot of ways, they're, they're considered to be much more harmful than just overt in-your-face racism because mm-hmm. with overt in-your-face racism, you can call it and you can say, that's, that's, that's bad. That's racism. Stop it. Go away. Right. But with microaggressions, it's not that the person is necessarily has any ill intent. It's the person is a lot of times channeling what they see in everyday life. Right. Mm. And they're noticing differences about people and just sort of like mentioning it. And so on a daily basis, if it happens over and over and over and over and over again, it's like death by a million cuts. And so those sorts of microaggressions are harmful because they're easily denied. You can say, Max was, I'm not sure about that comment. Like, uh, am I taking it the wrong way or what? And so Max can easily go, oh, no, no, I didn't mean it that way at all. Right. In the academic setting, what what would an example be? Because you've interviewed a lot of scientists in the geosciences about their experiences. What, What are some of the commonalities? Yeah. So if you see, for example, a Black geoscientist or a Latinx geoscientist, let's say they're in a lecture hall and they're about to start their class say it's the first day of class, students walk in and uh, one student say, you know, might come in and say, sorry, why are you standing up there? Like, why don't you take a seat over here? That's a microaggression because it's mm. like, um, sorry, I'm the professor here. Mm. Yeah. And that's why I'm standing up here, right? So yeah. you'll get those sorts of comments. That's, that's an example of a racial microaggression. So I took you away from starting to talk about the first aspect of this training. I- The first aspect is you come to the leaders of academic institutions who have the power to hire faculty and you start the training there. And so over the course of a semester, they go through three simulations. The first one I just talked about with microaggressions and the the second component of that same simulation is about allyship. So somebody who has been microaggressed, Mm -hmm. how do you ally with them? In other other words, support them and really um, elevate them, right? 
The second simulation is about a job search. So in academic settings, you have a group of faculty basically sift through applications. And so uh, as you can imagine, there's a ton of prejudice that happens over there. And so what we do is we, we teach our, our participants on how to advocate for diversity. How do you mm-hmm. advocate for it without sort of by avoiding tokenism, by avoiding all these uh, other sorts of things that happen. And we teach them how to, how to do that, how to advocate for candidates by talking about diversity as a resource mm-hmm. rather than a checkbox that you have to go through. So you go through the conversations, the hiring conversations that happen when you see resumes around the table as a group, you're looking at the different resumes, deciding who to shortlist, who to hire. So what are some of the things that come up in this context in academia that you address? So a lot of times what happens is you narrow down the list to three finalists who you bring into campus to do a job presentation. Imagine you had like say four candidates and you're trying to eliminate one and just bring in three. And let's say it comes down to two candidates. You're going this one, this one person. And in our simulation, it's a a white man from Stanford with a very, very well-known advisor who one of your committee members is good friends with. It's sort of the old boys club. Right. Mm-hmm. And then a second candidate who had, who is a Latino woman from an HSI or Hispanic serving institution that is uh, relative unknown. And the, the, the advisor is also an, a relative unknown. But what you find is that if you actually carefully look at uh, their CVs and we, these are all mock CVs that we've created out of mm-hmm. sort of like guided by real people advocating for a candidate from an HSI, from a marginalized community, from who's a relative unknown, it takes some work. And so what happens is your avatar colleagues will say things like, seriously, are we seriously considering this person from uh, UT Rio Grande Valley versus this person from Stanford? In my mind, Stanford beats, beats UT Rio Grande Valley every day. Right. And so you have that, mm-hmm. you have to have that conversation about how, well, we're not hiring universities, we're hiring people. You, you really have to get into that, that conversation. Um, and it takes some, some sophistication to be able to do that. It's not a superficial process where you say, well, we should mm-hmm. give everyone a chance. I mean, you look deeper and say, what is their publication record? What is their teaching record? Did they publish in equally good journals? Or I mean, the, these are the type of scenarios you dig into, exactly right? right. I mean, yeah, and, and uh, one aspect that's also really important is how do you advocate for diversity? And, and one way that you do that is by saying, look at the sorts of things this person's publishing about. Yes, they're unfamiliar to you as a committee because you publish about sort of these standard sorts of things, she happens to be publishing about something that's very different, but it's very important when it comes to diverse populations. And what you do is you have to tie that argument to organizational documents. Like, for example, your university's vision or mission statement, or strategic plan goals, or to your professional society's mission statement. And you can say then, look, we're, we're a geoscience community. Our professional society in the geosciences, their mission statement says this about diversity. So if we're, we're, we're gonna be true to our, our scientific profession here, we really need to be uh, hiring people who have an eye toward these issues. 
And this particular candidate does. And this other candidate does not. Right. right. So those are the sorts of things that aren't obvious and on people's radar when they're trying to think through hiring decisions. And so do you trigger options or when someone's going through this learning experience, maybe someone doesn't think to look at the diversity policies of the university? How do you add knowledge <clears throat> yeah. into the so, program? Like, I'm going to use this theater metaphor again, like an actor who's preparing for a scene, we give people some mm -hmm. material. So we don't give them a script, right? But we do tell them, here's what's at your disposal. And here is mm -hmm. what each of the avatars angle is going to be. Your angle, right? So they know coming into the simulation that they're going to have a particular angle, but it's up to them on how they go about pursuing that angle. We are sort of constraining the the paths that you can take so that you don't have an infinite number of paths to take. But within this sort of this path that we, we're, we're telling people that they should try out, there are many ways to go about it. So there's no one single right answer. Uh, there's multiple ways that you can go about doing it. Absolutely. And do you have conversations about the experience? How do you yeah. unpack I, that? I love that because in the spirit of Olympic games, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about sports, but like in sports, good teams watch a lot of tape and that's what we mm -hmm. do here. So in a lot of ways, what we're doing is this is almost like athletic training. You do the, the thing, right? You mm -hmm. perform, but then because all of this is virtual, it's all, for, it's all recorded. And so that recording goes to the learner and the learner then watches it Okay. and says, oh, wow. I did mm -hmm. that. Maybe next time this pops up, especially in real life, I could I could do this a little bit better. And so those are the sorts of things that are particularly helpful. So we will take our learners through that exercise and saying, hey, what did you try? What did you think of it? Did you find it successful? And are there ways that you could go about it a little differently in the future? That's really fantastic. It's a really great way of learning. So there's really three parts, the microaggressions, being aware of them, then there's being an ally, and then there's mm -hmm. the hiring process. So we haven't talked very much about the middle part, being an ally. What does being an ally mean? And yeah, so like? it's also, there's a lot of nuance to this too, because it's a delicate balance between stepping on somebody's toes on the one hand, and on the other hand, not being supportive enough. And so one of the first things that you can do as an ally is just sort of like, it involves nonverbals. And the beautiful thing about these simulations is that there are nonverbals. You can look by checking in with Maya, with the character, right? And so you're, you're checking in, you're looking at Maya, you're, you're, you're judging her body language, is, is her, are her arms folded? When you respond a certain way, does Maya look down and pull out her cell phone or does she, because she could do that, you know? And so all of these different things, you're reading the body language of the avatars. And so it, 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 it begins by reading body language. From there, it's about sort of taking the heat off of the person being microaggressed, directing the attention toward the microaggressor by asking questions and then sort of elevating Maya, right, and and trying to clear the space for her so that she can she can speak for herself. 
Wonderful. That must be a very, very powerful experience to go through this, this training. What kind of feedback have you received from people? What kind of reaction do people have? We've had respondents say, I was really, really bugged out by talking to avatars at first. But once I got in and started having those conversations, because it felt so natural, like a lot of people have said, I know Max. Max <laughs> is my department chair. I know Max very right. well. I've worked with Max for 20 years, right? That's great. Uh, and so the things that Max has said, I, I hear every day. Um, and so the realism, the, a lot of people talk a lot about that realism, that conversational realism. That's really exciting. And it's also, it, it really helps with that immersion aspect. Mm -hmm. So that it's that conversational immersion. Some people also say that, you know, the technology is so impressive that they forget that they're talking to a digital avatar, that the, it feels like they're talking to an actual person. So the, that's the kind of feedback that we get. That's great. I've been recently doing this with a business school. Okay. Uh, so talk about like, you know, branching out beyond the geosciences and even beyond STEM, you know, we, we're doing this with a, with, with a business school. And what, one of the people who I was working with said, thank you so much for doing this because I have been here for X number of years and I have had more conversations about diversity, equity, and inclusion in the past three months than I have in my entire time here. So it generates a lot of trickling effect into the overall department. Totally, totally. I think that that's a lot of what the strength is because when it comes to diversity, equity, inclusion, a lot of people in a lot of organizations just don't know how to start that conversation. And so the beauty of, of this particular thing here is that it gets people started on that conversation. It takes down some of those barriers of feeling awkward about it? Absolutely. I mean, mm -hmm. it gets the whole organization talking because the whole team now has a shared experience, right? Yeah. Everyone just went through the same exact simulations. Everyone has just gotten a recording of themselves going through the simulations, yeah. right? And so, as I said, many people in organizations just don't know how to start talking about race or racism in productive ways. Mm -hmm. These simulations give people that starting point and say, hey, you went through simulation one with me. Like, what did you do with Max? Like, mm -hmm. how did you, yeah. oh, okay. You know, and then that's where the conversation can start. And then what happens is, you know, you need to start then moving towards a team approach where you start going, hey, can we get three, four, five, six of us in the department to really start crafting out like what we'd like to be able to see in the next year, two, three years? How do we start making movement towards that vision? And so that, that's another step. That's something that the, the simulations can begin that conversation on. Mm -hmm. uh, and because our simulations tap into organizational types of things that happen, like hiring processes. Yeah. The third and final simulation we didn't talk about, but it's about advocating for structural change in your department that rewards and recognizes efforts that are geared towards diversity, equity, and inclusion. So what we're doing is we're trying to teach our leaders how do you start the conversation that leads to structural and systematic change. We start those conversations. It's up to, it's up to the organization with some outside help to really keep that going. 
That's great. And certainly, I mean, these types of conversations and trickling effect doesn't happen from all types of training, because I don't think necessarily traditional diversity training or other types of training where you go through a program and you check off the right answers and give the, the right answers, you don't end up talking about it afterwards with your colleagues, really. So it really speaks to the fact that you bring in not only a lot of detail by interviewing a lot of people in the field and bringing in real scenarios, but also the theatrical aspect and the learning science of how people really do learn in a long-term way. That's fantastic. Otherwise, these conversations would never trickle outside of that program, mm -hmm. would it? Do you find that the talking to the avatar, I mean, you said that it's often people don't know how to talk about uh, diversity. Do you find that they are more candid or more guarded because it is an avatar and it's a little bit strange? Maybe it's a mix. I don't it is a little bit of a mix, but one of the things that we encourage from the beginning with people is this is like a flight simulation. If you crash and burn, it's okay. No one gets hurt, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but it is a chance to try new things, right? To stretch your wings a little bit. I liked how you said at the beginning of our conversation that you're listening to a podcast about something about failure. What is yes. it? How to fail? <laughs> yes, that's right. right? How something to like fail. That. Uh, and, and so I would imagine that in, in that that podcast, you're talking a lot about like, how do we create sort of low stakes sorts of situations where people can try new things mm -hmm. yeah. so that, you know, failures aren't high cost. Right. And so these sorts of simulations are one component of that, right? So like, how do you provide this space for you to try things that you've learned so that you can try to cement it in your muscle memory? Because a lot of what, what learning is, particularly these really complex social skills. It's about getting it to the point so that like when you're in the situation and it is high stakes, that you have the words and the actions at the ready. That you've practiced it. Right. Mm. So unlike f flight simulation, where you come into it and you haven't flown a plane before, here it is not necessarily obvious that someone doesn't have these skills, because I think a lot of people who take diversity training feel and think in most cases are not, don't have prejudices against other people. So what do you think is actually really important for people to understand about exclusion and what it means to be inclusive in, a, in an environment? Because there is a lot to learn for everyone, but it, unlike a new skill such as flying, you may think, well, I actually, I have that covered because I have no bad intentions towards anyone. Yeah. I think that's probably one very big misconception about this is that mm -hmm. if you have good intentions, then, then, then you're good. Mm -hmm. you're, you're good to go. But that's the thing about systemic mm -hmm. sexism or racism is that it's the whole ecosystem that you're in. And so what we find in our trainings is that I'm going to tell you two words here that um, I can explain a little bit about. First word is self-efficacy, which is about your confidence to be able to accomplish something. Okay, mm -hmm. So you may have, just to take this uh, sports and Olympics metaphor, <laughs> you may have very high self-efficacy to be able to make three-point shots in, mm -hmm. in you know, basketball. But the second word I want to talk about is something called collective efficacy. Collective efficacy is your confidence to be able to work together with your team to achieve a collective goal. Mm -hmm. So you may have high self-efficacy to be able to drain a three-pointer in basketball, 
at the last minute. But your collective efficacy depends on your own self-efficacy, but it also depends on how cohesive your group is, your team is, mm -hmm. uh, how well you're able to read your teammates and your teammates are able to read you. And that's the ecosystem that we talk about, right? And, and maybe the, if you zoom out a little bit further, the ecosystem could be the context in which you're playing. Maybe different countries have, have different sort of uh, cultural expectations behind uh, basketball. Maybe, you know, playing in the Olympics in, in Tokyo, Japan is a very different experience than it is playing in uh, Orlando, Florida. Yeah. Uh, and so those are the sorts of things that happen. And so when we talk about this in terms of diversity, equity, and inclusion, yes, you may have good intentions. Yes, you may be very fluent in talking about diversity. Yet, if your department is a particularly challenging environment, then what you're going to have to be able to do is navigate that challenging environment. How do you navigate pushback? If you got some great ideas about how a search committee for hiring should be done differently, that there should be new policies that should be uh, you know, gone through and that sort of thing, you're going to have to get it passed the faculty mm -hmm. and written into policy Absolutely. and that's politics and there's a lot of pushback that you will get and you have to be able to navigate that space so that's what we're trying to do here in this space is we're trying to teach our learners how do you deal with resistance mm -hmm. and with pushback or with apathy and those are the sorts of things that we try to try to teach that's wonderful so it really does dig below the surface of here are the checkboxes of what should and should not be done. And you put it into practice with the, with the nuances. So if anyone is interested in using this tool in their organization, how can they access it? So the company Mersion itself is one avenue to do that. Uh, they have a whole team of simulation specialists and, and people to, to be able to work with on that. My team is also a great resource. We are just getting started on this because we're focused specifically on diversity, equity, and inclusion in an academic setting. And we put a lot of thought into that sort of theater aspect of making these things extremely realistic mm -hmm. conversationally and in, in terms of the situations. Yeah. And so we do spend a lot of time working out the scenarios. So those scenarios are meaningful and useful for a particular organization. Because it is really tailored. I guess the th fact is that it has to be tailored to that type of work environment, not just academic, but a specific subject. There are nuances yeah. in that that really can't be mixed and matched, can they? That's exactly right. Uh, I'll give you a great example. Like I was telling you, I was working with a business school and we were working... Um, so that we, we created a hiring situation also, right? We were in the search committee and the, the, the group I was working with said, let's, let's make it so that we're hiring for the finance department. Mm -hmm. Well, I didn't realize that in finance, the lead author is listed last, or was it in alphabetical? I can't even remember anymore, <laughs> yes. um, but it's different from my field, which is yes. in education and psychology where the lead author is listed first. And so it's tiny little nuances like that, that are, that are really particularly useful, but then also this particular business school, its culture looks and sounds different than another finance department. There may be some common overlapping themes, but this particular business school was wrestling with some things and they wanted to be able to you know, address those issues. 
Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. So that just speaks to the detail that you go into, because exactly as you said, when you're having that virtual discussion about someone's resume, it really makes a huge difference. Is it a well-known journal they published in or not so well-known or are they first author or not first? Those are important conversations. But if you don't know the journals and you don't know the culture of that field, then you can't actually make any judgments on it. Well, that's fascinating. And, and definitely you have lots of work cut out for you to expand into different areas and different uh, fields. So for anybody who doesn't have the program, are there some key tips that you would have on maybe how they can take elements of the learning and implement it into their department? So one of the things that I've learned and I guess new also is that there's a lot that you can as an individual do. And I think a lot of people are familiar with those sorts of things, uh, being able to lean into difficult conversations, be able to um, sort of be aware of your biases, those sorts of things. But really, if you want to make organizational change, that requires a lot more effort. And I think that people, regardless of whether they access this kind of resource or not, really need to be having lots of conversations with colleagues in their unit or the department. In a lot of ways, you've got to be able to know your social network and be able to say, if we want to make X change, who's the gatekeeper? Who's the person or the organization that really will allow that sort of thing to happen? Make sure that your social network points you toward that person or organization so that you can make the difference at that decision-making spot. That's great. Really important. So what's next for Geodes? Yeah, so Geodes was a two-year pilot, and it was a sort of proof of concept. Mm -hmm. uh, so NSF, or the National Science Foundation, funded it as sort of like a, hey, we're going to take a risk on you, see what happens. And what we'd like to do now is sort of say, hey, there was this proof of concept. It was uh, quite successful. We've now taken it out into a business school, for example. And now let's really look at how we can make a national impact. Mm -hmm. How can we then link up with other people and organizations who are, who are interested in what we are interested in and find sort of overlaps and in our vision and in our mission so that we can actually make change at a larger level, at a national level. Mm, uh, so that's what we're doing now is we're looking at, all right, what else needs to be part of this puzzle to make large scale change because we know that you know I was talking about Bernard and Cooper doc talking about you know how it's the least diverse field in, in STEM what I didn't mention yet is that this has been the case for over four decades right. and Bernard and Cooper doc show that really really well hmm. and it's not like people haven't been trying right, right? Uh, NSF has been doing this has been trying to address this for over 20 years and so we do need to find larger ways, ways to sort of like affect change at a systematic level mm. so that organizations, the professional societies, departments of geosciences, the NSF even are moving the needle on an organizational level. Well, you've developed a fantastic program and, uh, and it's really exciting the type of work that you're doing and are continuing to expand in. So definitely, I look forward to watching where you go with this. But before yeah. we end, I just wanted to ask you if you have a recommendation for something to read or watch, something that inspires you in this space. Yeah, we talked a little bit in the beginning about a podcast. I really enjoy listening, uh, besides to this podcast, to Sway. Mm -hmm. And the reason why I, I say that especially in regards to what I've been talking about is 
in this podcast way, it's about power and how people use power. Well, that's what advocacy for diversity, equity, and inclusion is all about. It's about right. understanding the dynamics of power. How do people use power and leverage it for good and bad? Yeah. And what are ways that we can uh, learn from those sorts of stories? And so uh, I do like getting ideas from there. That's great. Well, it's definitely one for people to take a look at because it is uh, it is a great podcast way and yeah. uh, important topics that are discussed. So thank you. Well, Jason, yeah. it's always such a pleasure to talk to you. And I really, really enjoyed hearing more about this important project and work that you and your team are working on. And uh, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and insights on the podcast. Of course. Thanks for having me. It's so great to connect with you again and to be on your podcast. Oh, thank you. Thank <laughs> you.